Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Full court mess. A federal court finds the government is failing Canadians by failing to fill dozens of judicial vacancies. I'll speak with the human rights lawyer who brought the case against the federal government. Getting with the program. For years, Polish TV said ugly, discriminatory things about the queer community. Now a journalist has apologized. One activist tells us what that apology meant and why it's just a first step. Net loss. Officials in Senegal are starting to make a habit of blocking internet access. A human rights activist explains why he is fighting that tactic in an international court. Mother of intervention. Cecilia Gentili dedicated her life to advocating for trans rights. One of her chosen daughters tells us how the late activist inspired her to embrace her true self. High roller. At the Super Bowl halftime show, Usher wore a brand new pair of roller skates, which may be the brand new key to getting more people involved in the sport, at least according to one excited skater. Sign me up. (laughs) And a dad giveaway. It may seem unlikely that an Arizona candidate's three young kids each donated thousands to his campaign, but he says it's a given that they gave it voluntarily. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that assumes he granted them certain allowances. A federal court judge tore a strip off the Trudeau government today. Justice Henry S. Brown ruled that, quote, the prime minister and minister of justice are simply treading water, unquote, when it comes to keeping the country's courts staffed with judges. Justice Brown went on to say that in the process, they had failed all those who have unsuccessfully sought timely justice in the superior courts and federal courts across Canada. The decision follows a letter to the Prime Minister last year in which Supreme Court Chief Justice Ricard Wagner warned of an impending crisis in Canada's courts if dozens of vacancies weren't filled. Yavar Hamid is the human rights lawyer who brought the case against the federal government. We reached him in Ottawa. Yavar, what does the failure Justice Brown refers to in the decision look like in real life, in a courtroom, for someone seeking justice? Not having a judge available means you don't get your day in court. You don't have um, a judge who's prepared to hear you for, for my clients, some of which who suffer from post-traumatic stress and other you know, debilitating disabilities. Not being able to adjudicate your concern means that you're waiting for, for months, maybe years, just to be heard. And that's, that's on civil matters. You know, in the area of criminal law, you're looking at uh, not having a trial or perhaps not even being uh, released in a timely fashion. And how do, do you, your clients, how have they been reacting in those most difficult cases to having justice delayed? It's never um, a good thing. The court system is, is typically, it's not a friendly process. No one likes to go to court. 
and and I had a case uh, back in in 2022 that was delayed for about four months. We were ready, prepared to go to trial, and on the eve of trial, we were told there were just no judges, so we had to postpone it, and that's just unacceptable, and it just increases the anxiety of the person who uh, who, who wants to get their dispute resolved. Minister Verani has responded with a statement, and he also posted it on social media, and I'll read some of it now. He wrote, in six months as minister, because he just got the job in the summer, he says, in six months as minister, I've appointed 64 judges. That was Harper's average annual number. I'm working twice as fast, referring to previous Harper government. He goes on to say, this means we, we do have more positions to fill, but make no mistake, there are still more judges sitting today than ever in our history. That's again from Minister Varani. So why is it a failure now? I mean, the, the problem is a cumulative one. As Justice Brown noted, the statistics are just not, they're not adequate. You know, the, the crisis is appalling and untenable, as he's called it. Uh, and until those numbers go down, uh, in terms of uh, what the vacancies are, the, the court is noting that there, there could be best efforts that are being made but uh, the, the problem has to be remedied, and it has to be remedied in a reasonable amount of time. And so it's great. It's great that uh, the, the minister is saying that, that he's taking it seriously. I don't expect any less. But uh, the fact that this is now in a judicial pronouncement, in a declaration, that means there is a serious, serious responsibility that is not just about the, the minister's discretion to do this. There's a legal obligation at play. What is at play, though, in your view? Why aren't these positions being filled? I mean, it's, it's a good question. The, the government says that, look, we're not getting qualified candidates. And, you know, to, to some extent, there, there, there could be some truth in that. But then I think what, what, what the court is highlighting is that there needs to be greater efforts. There need to be more efforts. Those, those vacancies need to be filled. And it's, it's not good enough to sort of rest on your laurels to say, look, my track record is, is better than, than our predecessor. The vacancies need to be filled because tangibly, when those vacancies are not filled, we just don't have, um, you know, the, the level of judicial support to be able to, to, de- to deal with the cases we need to deal with. Now, there's two problems. One is that you don't have enough judges to adjudicate cases, but the, the flip side of that is that for the judges who are there, uh, the workload is, is doubled and, and tripled because they don't have uh, the support from their colleagues. And so the, the, the status quo, what we have now, that's the thing, that's the crisis that Justice Brown's talking about. Minister Rani went on to say in that statement in those social media posts, there are multiple factors that contribute to court delays, and we call upon the provinces and territories to also do their part to help. So he's saying they need to do more. Should they be doing more? I mean, it's, it's, it's a collaborative process, certainly, but um, one of the issues that was raised, ev- even in, in federal court before for Justice Brown, uh, where my colleague uh, Nicholas Pope argued, um, you know, Justice Brown raised that concern, but ultimately it doesn't detract um, from what the federal minister's responsibility is. And so, yes, there, there are uh, logistical constraints and there's provincial responsibilities, but um, more can be done. And this is what was highlighted uh, by, uh, by Justice Brown, is that uh, there is a legal responsibility. And when there's a legal responsibility, the corollary to that is that a way forward uh, has to be found. And it's not just a trifling matter. This is probably the most 
serious access to justice concern that we have in the country because it means the very basis of adjudicating any kind of dispute, essentially getting justice. And when justice is delayed, that's that's effectively being denied. Does this decision sort of set a clock now? I mean, do you, do you anticipate this backlog being covered or these positions being filled, these judges being appointed much more quickly now? Well, the, the, the court doesn't set a specific timetable, but, uh, but what Justice Brown says is that it, it needs to be remedied in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, that could mean within six months to a year. But I, I do think that there is implicitly, just given the language of the court, there is a, a time clock. There is a pressure that's being put on this. And the other thing that uh, the federal court has left open to us or, or myself and, and you know, other, other lawyers who may want to do this, come forward and come back uh, before the court if in, in, you know, say, for example, six months, this is not remedied. So that is something that we're looking into. We, we hope that the government is going to do the right thing, uh, is going to close this gap, and we'll obviously be looking at it very closely. What will you do if it's not filled, if these positions aren't filled in a reasonable time period, a time period that you feel is, is reasonable? It, it, it may be that, uh, that we come back before the court. The, the court has sort of given us that nod that we can do it. Uh, it's not an easy thing, as, as my colleague Nicholas Pope, who, who argued mm-hmm. the case. The, the, this takes, um, you know, many, many hours of preparation to do on a pro bono basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, we're ready to do it. We're ready for that fight if, if it calls for it. Yavr, thank you. My pleasure. Yavr Hamid is a human rights lawyer. We reached him in Ottawa. It happened again today, like it did last week, and time and again since July. The government of Senegal shut down internet access on all mobile phones, citing safety concerns. For the vast majority of the population, phones are the only way online. The tactic has been used repeatedly since federal elections were delayed, sparking outrage and demonstrations. One such protest was scheduled for this morning, but last night authorities announced that it had been banned. The human rights organization Afriktivist is suing the government of Senegal over the internet shutdowns in an international African court. Papa Ismaila Dieng is an advocacy officer with that group. We reached Mr. Dieng in Dakar, Senegal. Ismaila, you were out on the streets of, of Dakar today. What did you see? Um, I saw I see uh, so many police forces and uh, what we call in French gendarmerie mm-hmm. um, in the street. They didn't want people to protest, as uh, the protest was forbidden last day, yesterday by officials, um, saying that it will cause some troubles in the city. And uh, so, so many of them, they there was no, I didn't see a gun, but they have their shields, they have tear gases, and they have some sticks to beat people if they protest. So the protest that was supposed to happen this morning, the government were, was able to shut it down before it even happened. Um, yes, they were able to uh, shut it down. And at the same time, the organizers t- t- told people not to protest today as the, the, the authorities didn't allow it to take place. And they are preparing another one on uh, February 17th. What is it like for you to see your city like that? It's something I, I I can get used to, and we're having it more and more. We have it on the last two or three years now. 
that's very scary for people. Like you get out of your house and out of your house, and you see so many policemen, so many police uh, cars and uh, trucks waiting for people and you know they're just here to beat people if they try to protest if uh, protestation is constitutional right it's written uh, it's written in the in our constitution but you have the, the, they're using so many forces to 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 shut down protestation and we don't understand why it's something you cannot get used to you said it surprises you to to see that many law enforcement officers yeah, even exactly when we speak about shutdowns, yeah. the internet was shut down uh, again today. Yeah. How yeah, is, today. is it? How is that impacting how people get any information online? Uh, that's very difficult for people to get information online if they are not on the Wi-Fi. Uh, the the problem is um, uh, the ninety six more than ninety six percent of Senegalese people who are using internet are doing it with mobile data. So Wi-Fi is just for four or three uh, percent of Senegalese internet users. Um, so you can imagine the number of people who cannot access to internet today, who cannot have information today, who cannot buy anything on the internet today as they do it every day. And just in terms of people's daily lives, I mean, they may not be involved in protests or political activity at all, but how does this affect them every day? Some simple things you do every day, like... Uh, buying stuff on internet like uh, watching movies on the internet like talking to your family on the internet that you cannot do uh, and you have like people as me who work on internet every day um, it's very complicated for people like to, to be informed of what's going on some people were calling me in the day and saying do you know if there is protest somewhere because I've got some uh, um, I have to go out for some of my um, um, uh, myself and I do not know if there is protest there and I I really couldn't inform them of what was going on in the street of Dakar. The government communications ministry has said they need to block the internet access to stop people from sharing messages that the government describes as quote hateful and subversive and to prevent quote deadly protests. Three people did die during protests last week but but in the answer to the question why they're doing this, what do you make of, of those answers, their justifications for blocking this access? Are they just trying to maintain order and keep people safe? No, the, 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 there are two, way to, two ways to maintain order and keep people safe. The first thing is, like, uh, you, as you said, that there were three deaths last week mm-hmm. in the protest. But those people were shot to death by police. So the first thing for the government to avoid people dying in the street is to tell the police not to shoot people. That's the first thing. And mm-hmm. the second thing is they have just one thing to do to maintain people and order, people at home and order, is to respect the constitution and people rise to have election. How do you think this lawsuit that you're a part of can help? The, the first thing, as, as you said, the lawsuit is a way to tell the world what's going on. They cannot, like, if they shut down internet here, they cannot shut down internet at the uh, ECOWAS court. They cannot, have, um, they cannot stop the, uh, the ECOWAS court on dealing with the case, and the, uh, the, the, the case will be public, so the world will know the first thing. The second thing is we want the court to say to, the, to our states that internet is not a privilege for people. It's a right for people. It's a right for people to uh, talk on the internet and uh, to, to spread their, um, their ideas, their opinions on what's going on first. It's the right for people 
to get information from the internet. It's the right for media to have internet to, to, to inform people. And our government, uh, 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 like for them, internet is a privilege. It's like you tell your, your kids who, who weren't very nice, okay, to, uh, now tonight you will not watch TV or tonight you will not have your dessert after, after, after dinner. That's how they, they, they're behaving with us. And uh, the court will help us tell them that people have the right to internet. You cannot cut internet from them. Internet is a part of our life, of our daily basis life. It's not about just politics or something. And as we're going in an electoral process, the candidates will use internet to talk to their people. Ismaila, thank you for your time. Thank you again, Neil, for the invitation. Papa Ismaila Dieng is an advocacy officer with the human rights organization Afriktivist. We reached him in Dakar, Senegal. We're going to play something for you now. It's very short, it's very significant, and it's in Polish. Well, that means I'm sorry. And it meant a lot to a lot of people. That was a journalist named Wojciech Schelling making an apology live on Poland's public broadcaster. He was apologizing for years of what he called shameful words directed at the country's 2S LGBTQ plus community on air, years when the right-wing Law and Justice Party was in power. Two activists were in the TV studio listening to that apology. One of them is Bart Staszewski. We reached him in Warsaw. Bart, take us back into that television studio with you. You're sitting right across from this television host, this journalist. Did you expect to get an apology that day? Not really. I was really prepared for just a normal short interview, like like on a daily basis. But first time there, first time in the public TV, and Mm -hmm. suddenly he... Uh, made this appearance with the apology, which was a big, huge news also for us in the studio. Uh, yeah, I, I don't speak Polish, but just even listening to the clip, watching the, the full clip with subtitles, it was quite moving. What was it like for you to hear those words? I'm sorry. I mean, I was never expecting that I need them so much because for many years we were we were a target. LGBT people were a target of the government and uh, public TV was the tool in their hands portraying us as some kind of enemy. Uh, I remember the headlines from the public TV, like LGBT ideology destroys the family. And it was the real quotes from the journalist over there, uh, the host who was accusing us of, of the worst. So an apology is an important ingredient of, uh, of healing, actually. Now I know it, I get the same. I was uh, moved by his words and we, you, you could really hear yeah. him shaking that it was not something that was really prepared. And yes, it was a beautiful moment. What did he tell you about why he made that apology? Uh, he told that this is the honest thing to do, the, the thing that should happen. And many people commenting on the internet tell that we are not used to this normality of of situation where, where you do something wrong, you make an apology. And suddenly a good person, good man in TV is doing what should be done many years ago. We should never be a target of the government. Yeah. And suddenly somebody is giving us this dignity. And, w- and we should be clear, uh, Wojciech Schelling only recently started working for TVP. He did not make 
those those anti-gay remarks that you've been talking about. You, yeah, you, so you, he's the last person yeah. to, <laughs> to to make an apology, but this decency, uh, which he has in his character, mm-hmm. made him knew that this is the good, the correct thing to do, the, the normal thing, but usually we don't see it too much. What kind of impact did those earlier words, those earlier attacks, the ones he's since apologized for, have? Mm. Um, those was horrible things because the, when it happens once, you could think that this is some kind of one-time error or, or problem. But I remember 2019, 2020, when the public TV, state TV was like on daily basis, really focusing on the LGBT topics, showing us as some kind of enemy. And they accuse us that what we are doing is an LGBT ideology. We are a threat to the Polish nation. And by the LGBT ideology, they mean pride parades, they mean two men, two women holding hands in the public, because it's a promotion of sin, and promotion of sin is some kind of gay lifestyle, gay ideology. So this is something that in 21st century should never happen in the middle of Europe. We don't have civil unions, we don't have a hate speech law, nothing protects us from what was happening then. Now, with the new government, they promise to give the new law, which will protect us from the hatred, mm-hmm. uh, the refresh uh, criminal code. Civil unions are on the way, so something is happening. We are, of course, watching carefully the politicians, uh, but this is the, the new chapter, let's say. Does Poland feel safer to you now? I mean, I was the enemy of many politicians who was really targeting me and uh, and still trying to find myself in this new situation when I don't need to be a warrior for this cause. I need to cooperate with the politicians on the very different conditions. Mm. It's hard for many activists. We want to cooperate with them. We carefully approach those politicians' uh, promise to us. Mm. And I see that they are doing that. What I want to mention that Two weeks ago, we met with the Justice Minister, Adam Bodnar, which also made in the, his first words the apology. So hearing that from this very good human rights defender for many years, he was working mm-hmm. as ombudsman, made me think that this is really something new. It is a significant shift. I mean, thinking back to when you were on our program a few years ago, you were telling us about how some communities had declared themselves LGBTQ plus free zones. You know, these yeah. are words, as you said, these are first steps. Um, but you've also said you, you'd like to see a further apology from the highest level, from Prime Minister yeah. Donald Tusk now. Yeah, because I think that there are always times when the, the, the highest level politicians are making an apology for the past things that happened. The unique thing that happened in Poland, that the own country targeted their own people, the minority living here, uh, is something that should be recognized by the top politicians. I have seen the comments on the internet. How how big was the impact of this short video I posted on the Twitter, mm-hmm. where people was telling me Bart, I was crying. I mean, gay people from Poland was telling that Bart, I was crying. So how much we want this apology? How how much it's necessary for this healing process? Apology is the first step. Then is to, to make the people accountable for what they was doing. This horrible. Uh, idea of the LGBT free zone that happened around the Poland. The one third of Poland was with those horrible acts. Many people left Poland. Now they are living in Germany, Sweden. Some left mm-hmm. even the States. And they will never get back because their own country were against them. So how you want to make uh, the new generation, which is here, to, to, to restore this trust into the politicians' words? 
Bart, thank you. Thank you so much. Bart Stashevsky is a 2S LGBTQ plus activist. He's in Warsaw. Children love to help their parents. I mean, whose kids haven't begged to clean the chimney like in Mary Poppins or pleaded to stay up a little longer so they can finish cleaning the chandelier with a toothbrush? But what kids really love is to spend years saving up every dollar they got from birthdays and Christmases and the tooth fairy and then give that money to their dad because they respect him so much. This is the normal thing that Connor O'Callaghan plausibly reports happened to him. Mr. O'Callaghan is running in the Democratic primary in Arizona's first congressional district, so he has been fundraising, and his perseverance has deeply impressed three Arizonans, who each donated the maximum amount possible, $3,300. These Arizonans are Mr. O'Callaghan's elementary school-aged children. Now, after the Arizona Republic noticed these unusual acts of familial generosity, a reporter got in touch with the candidate, who explained, quote, My oldest son saw all the work that I was putting into this campaign and asked if he's able to contribute. And then, like in any family dynamic, his younger brothers wanted to do the same thing, unquote. Well, this seems legal and relatable. Whom among us has not been so moved by our young children's love that we cashed their check for thousands of dollars? And what child has not yearned to spend a huge amount of money on a parent's political campaign rather than something boring like toys or a bike or college? But I do hope the candidate will refuse any further financial offers from his kids. I mean, there's only so much you can take. The town of Carmen, Manitoba is grappling with a horrifying loss. As we told you yesterday on the program, police have charged Ryan Howard Manikisik with the murders of five people who were found dead in and around the community on Sunday. The victims were his partner, Amanda Clearwater, their three young children, and Ms. Clearwater's teenage niece. All five lived together in Carmen. Amid the shock and mourning, the community has come together to support the family and each other. Reverend Harold Kenyon leads Carmen United Church. We reached him in Carmen. Reverend Kenyon, what kinds of questions are people in your community, in your church, asking today? Well, I think today people are asking, how can we help? Um, there's certainly been a circle of people gathered here at the church, just in our lobby, and mm-hmm. uh, they've been having conversation and kind of coordinating um food and kind of next steps in the ways that we can support the Clearwater family. And what have the last couple of days been like? Well, we first heard what had happened. It was late in the afternoon on Sunday, and of course, everyone was 
terribly shocked and saddened to to hear that such a crime had happened in our community to people we know and and love and um, since then people have we continue to try to process what's happened but um, I think people are really trying to rally around the uh, family and one another to to be the support that uh, best support that we can offer have you or anyone from your church had a chance to speak with the family I've not spoken with the family personally, but uh, one of my colleagues in ministry uh, has been over to the the house mm-hmm. as well as um, some other people that were um, um, gr- groups that were connected to have been over to the house to be supportive of, of the family. And what did they share about what the family is saying? Well, they're they're grieving terribly of. of course they're just trying to figure out next steps themselves it's a very complicated mm-hmm. situation and we want the family to have you know kind of control and say over what happens mm-hmm. where and all that sort of thing um whenever there's been um people are victims of crime there's um people feel powerless so we want to make sure that they they stay in control of yeah. what they need it's still so fresh, I I can only imagine, and the enormity of the loss. I mean, just looking at the names and ages. We've all had had kids and grandkids at this age, right? It's um, very shocking. Just to to tell our listeners or remind them, Amanda Clearwater, who was 30 years old, her children Bethany, six, Javen, four, and two and a half year old Isabella were killed, as well uh, as Amanda's niece, Maya Grattan, who was, who was 17 years old. You said you you know the family, Reverend. What can you tell us about them? We've, we've known them here at the church for, well, quite some time now. Amanda's uh, mom lives just actually across the back lane from the church, so mm-hmm. I guess we've always, we've always known them, and um, they've been involved in various kind of community uh, initiatives and things that are happening in the neighborhood. So, um, yeah, we know them. We know the family well. And what do you remember of the, the children? Oh, the kids. Boy, that's hard. Kids are so sweet. Um, you know, the one little girl was just in kindergarten, and uh, we've just tried to be supportive of them. I, I gather a little bit about what Carmen is like just from what you've said so far, but for people who've never seen it or hadn't heard about it until until this this case, how would you describe Carmen to them? You know, Carmen is a pretty typical small prairie farming town. Um, you know, it's a very tight-knit place as well. Um, a lot of deep family connections. So, yeah, but I certainly, we've, We've been very uh, touched by the the outreach from people all all over the province and indeed far beyond. People, a lot of people have been reaching out and uh, offering their prayers and support from uh, to the to the town and to the folks here who are who are just trying to be good neighbors. And you have more plans for for tomorrow. What more will your church be doing to try to help? 
Well, I say we're we're just kind of taking things day by day, mm-hmm. um, and there's, it's not just our church, but it's you know it's a community uh, effort. So there is a group in uh, in town called Carmen Wellness that's putting on a community supper tomorrow. They do it um, once a month. Such a thing happens in lots of congregations and communities all over Canada. People are invited to to come and share uh, a meal, and there will be extra um, support people available, you know, at that meal to just kind of just be with people to um, help help us all process and and grieve this. And the Clearwater family, you know, had certainly participated in the community meal in the past, and... uh, so there'll, there'll be a time for remembering them as well, I'm sure. As the investigation unfolds, what questions do you have that, that you want answered? Hmm. I, I, you know, at this point, the, the, whole, the whole event is so incomprehensible to me. Um, we're just dealing with the loss that uh, hmm. is present to us right now. Reverend Kenyon, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Neil. Blessings to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Reverend Harold Kenyon leads Carmen United Church. We reached him in Carmen, Manitoba. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. She was an author, a performer, a devoted advocate for trans rights, a determined legislative lobbyist, and one of the lead plaintiffs in a successful lawsuit against the Trump administration, which had attempted to roll back protections for trans people in the Affordable Care Act. Her name was Cecilia Gentili. She died on February 6th at her home in Brooklyn. She was 52. Beyond all the roles and achievements I just listed, Ms. Gentili was a mother to many people in the queer community. Rio Sofia is one of those mourning her loss today. Ms. Sofia is the Programs and Operations Director at Queer Art, where Cecilia Gentili was on the Board of Directors, and she's also one of Ms. Gentili's daughters. Rio, take us back in time. How did you first meet Cecilia? I met Cecilia one week into moving to New York City in 2013. I was going to Apicha, which is a health clinic downtown where Cecilia had recently started working. Uh, I was going in for an STI check, and Cecilia just found me in the waiting room and was like, you come with me. She saw something in me. Um, She saw a budding trans woman, and she wanted to see what I needed. And when you look back on that day, I mean, moving anywhere, let alone a big city, let alone New York, is a huge event. 
So to come into contact with someone who would later become so instrumental in your life is it's 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 monumental. It's lucky. How do you how do you remember that moment? I feel I mean, in retrospect, I feel so, so incredibly lucky. I got to find a mother, um, someone who really and truly became a mother to me a couple of years ago. I got married to my partner, another trans person, a beautiful T4T wedding. And um, Cecilia, she, you know, she encouraged me to have the wedding that I deserved and also that our community deserved. You know, in our community, we don't really get to see a lot of weddings. She she knew that to celebrate love um, was something that we don't really get to do in a really great big way. And so she helped plan my wedding and, you know, she got together with my biological mom. They helped each other pick their dresses <laughs> and um, she walked down the aisle with my mom to give me away. So from that one lucky day that I went for an STI check, <laughs> I, I, I got a true, true trans mother. Oh, that says <laughs> a lot. That says uh, everything you've said uh, says a lot about who she was uh, as a mother to you yeah. and as a person. In terms of her advocacy, her activism, Cecilia, we should tell our listeners, was born in Argentina, moved to the United States about 20 years ago or so. What did she tell you Correct. about how she came to move into the world of advocacy and activism? So she lived in Miami for a few years and then was escaping an abusive relationship and moved up to New York City. And, you know, she she has this beautiful story about how when she was a very young person in Argentina, her brother was teasing her and had convinced her that she was found on the railroad tracks and was left there by aliens. She spoke to her grandmother about it and was like, you know what, maybe, maybe you were. But one day, I promise you that you will find your own planet and you will find um, that those people on that planet are people just like you. Her grandmother was a really, really big support system for her in Argentina and was someone who could see her from very, very early on in her life. And her moving to New York is something that Cecilia felt was like that planet. What did she say to you about the shift in, in culture, more visibility, acceptance as always should have been but also the difficulty still what i loved so much about cecilia is that no matter what room that she was in she always always brought her full self she didn't care about respectability politics she cared about being honest and genuine and i think that some of the trappings of being hyper visible as trans people and so politicized is that we get put into a lot of pigeonholes about how it is that we can show ourselves. And for me, what she models for me is that I never have to hide who I am and that I can achieve great heights and get a lot done without having to compromise any part of myself. And so that for me is one of the big, big lessons that I think of when I think about the status quo, when I think about how people are reacting to, you know, the politicization of, of trans bodies and all of the all of the inc incredibly awful anti-trans legislation that she she fought for, that she made her her legacy. And so um, that's that's what I'll be carrying with me. It is very difficult to lose a loved one, uh, let alone a mother or a mother figure. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm devastated. I am 
really, really shattered. I was living with Cecilia. Mm -hmm. Cecilia had just bought a beautiful 10 acre property in upstate New York and it had two little houses and Mm -hmm. she was living with her husband Peter in one and I was living with my husband Sid in another. And, you know, near the, near the end of her life, she was just so excited about baking and gardening and we had all of the space to garden. We had literally just, um, you know, made a trail through the woods so that our doors could be more directly connected to each other. And just this wasn't the plan. She had so much more life to live. And so we are really, really hurting over here. I'm so sorry, Rio. It was sudden. It was very sudden. My condolences to you, Rio. I appreciate you sharing your memories. Thank you. Rio Sofia is the Programs and Operations Director at Queer Art and one of Cecilia Gentili's daughters. Ms. Gentili died last week. She was 52. When Lil John asked the tens of thousands of fans in Las Vegas's Allegiant Stadium this weekend if they were ready to get crazy, they were probably kind of taken aback because the situation was already mind-blowing. The audience had already seen Usher amid an organized chaos of tumbling sequined circus performers and Alicia Keys wearing a gigantic magical cape. And then what seemed like an untoppable high point, Usher suddenly on roller skates, performing an awe-inspiring, tightly choreographed dance routine alongside other roller skaters. That part was especially exciting to Wincy Pang. She's the director of the Roll Wright Skating Academy and the director and owner of Victoria's Roller Rhythm Skating Club. She talked to the CBC about the performance. It popped up uh, first on my Instagram feed, and I was like, no way, this didn't, <laughs> did he actually? And then I saw a little bit more, and now I'm like scrolling through my Instagram, and every third post is, <laughs> um, is, is Usher roller skating and people doing spin-offs of what he's done and other people already duplicating his performance. So it's been really exciting. What have you been hearing from fellow skaters uh, throughout the day? Well, the first post I saw was somebody saying that they were brushing off their skates now that they've seen that <laughs> Usher's brought roller skating back. Um, they call Usher like an OG skater, right? So, I mean, he's he. it's interesting with him because um, a lot of people are kind of just picking this up right now because it's a fad. Yeah. But he's always um, been a roller skater since childhood, and he's been part of that community. And so to see that community brought to such a large stage level, like this, it's making everybody super excited um, to be able to showcase an underrepresented activity and community such as roller skating. Break down his technique then for a quick moment. For anyone who hasn't seen it, <laughs> yeah. I was so impressed because he was smooth as you like, and yet he was keeping the vocals smooth as well. What did you make of that? I was so impressed with the whole crew, honestly. I see <laughs> I see a lot of roller skating. My Instagram feed is just full of roller skating all the time, but I was so pumped with all of the cool moves that they busted out right from the... They had toe spins, yeah. and the, the skaters slid into the splits, and they had, and Usher did some really nice dips, and uh, that's when you're like gliding backwards, and like you smooth roll into a, um, like a spiral 
kind of glide. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. And then he slid through the uh, other guy's legs. He slid through wild. Will I Am's legs. Yeah. And Will I Am's legs weren't even open that <laughs> wide. I was like, I mean, to go for that at the Super Bowl live when millions of people are watching you. That takes charisma and courage. Nobody pulled it off. Yeah, and to do that while singing with the lights, and oh, it, it was a lot, yeah. BC roller skater Wincy Pang speaking with Jason D'Souza, host of All Points West. Depending on your age, getting ID'd can be a rite of passage, a nuisance, or a compliment. But at six Liquor Control Board of Ontario stores, it will soon just be the norm. Starting this spring, the provincially run LCBO locations in Kenora, Sioux Lookout, and Thunder Bay will become the first in Ontario to take part in a controlled entrance pilot. In order to go inside, customers will need to scan a piece of government-issued identification at the door. A privacy experts have concerns, but the architects of a similar program in Manitoba say it has led to a massive reduction in theft, and our guest is hoping it will have the same effect in Ontario. Colleen McLeod is the chair of the Liquor Board Employees Division of the Ontario Public Service Employees Union. We reached her in Toronto. Colleen, you've been hearing stories from your members, from people who work at these stores. What's an example of what they experienced that would prompt a program like this? Well, um, most recently there's been, you know, escalating violence that has come along with the thefts in our stores. And, you know, our members obviously have some major concerns about their safety. Um, and we have been advocating to our employer through our Provincial Health and Safety Committee to look at a model very similar to what's going on in Manitoba. It has worked. Um, the people there feel a lot safer. So it's something that we have been advocating for. What about you? You you work in an LCBO store as well. Have you ever experienced this firsthand? Yes. I mean, it, it's scary being a liquor store worker. You know, let's let's be clear. I mean, it's it's a great job, but... You know, it's not like selling uh, jeans. It's not like selling milk, right? Um, we deal with an addictive substance, and often that does come with, you know, sometimes threats of violence. Um, also, you know, our cars being uh, vandalized, uh, people being followed home. You know, these are things that, you know, come with the job. To be clear for our listeners, this isn't just showing your your ID, as you might be asked to. Their ID will be scanned. And, and held in a database for a that, couple of weeks, correct? Yeah, that's my understanding. Um, the information that we received is exactly the information that is available publicly on the LCBO's website, which is um, they keep the information for 14 days. And then after the 14 days, the information is no longer kept in any database. It's, it's eliminated. Even if it's for a short term, you can uh, understand, I'm sure, that, that many people would be concerned about potential privacy issues. You know, people want to just purchase, make their purchases uh, anonymously uh, as they as they normally would. What do you say in response to those concerns? Well, I would say that, you know, this this small, you know, small infringement, you know, I, I would say is a small price to pay for the safety of members and to also secure the assets of um, the Ontario public. I mean, we as taxpayers own the LCBO. Those are assets that we own. And I think, you know, we've heard from a lot of customers as well that they're getting a little tired of this and they would also like to see, you know, more done to to secure those assets and, and prevent theft. On the theft prevention piece in particular, 
could they not tag the bottles as, you know, in retail, other retail outlets, they have security tags on things? Is that a solution that was that was considered as well? Well, I think, you know, the LCBO has done everything so far that they can, uh, to be honest. I, I don't know how much further, um, really, other than, you know, looking at a model similar to Manitoba. This will initially roll out in six stores. Uh, they're all in northern Ontario. What do you make of the locations that the government has chosen? Why did they pick those spots? I can't speak to why. I mean, I think would we as the union have loved to see more locations included in this pilot? Yes, we would have for sure. Um, but ultimately, the the LCBO and the government or whoever made those decisions um, made those decisions. After the the program in Manitoba that you referenced rolled out with rolled out its similar program, privacy experts expressed concern about what we discussed, that the customer data could be misused, but also raised concern that that information could be used to unfairly target Indigenous people and other marginalized groups. Does that concern you at all? Um, honestly, I can't, I can't speak to that. Um, what, I would, I would, well, I was going to say, what could you as a staff member or a team at a store do to make sure that isn't happening? Well, we, we already have extensive training regarding diversity, inclusion, you know, racial profiling. We get tons of training on, on that already, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not so concerned about our, my members, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest with you. And then there's the, the customer service piece uh, of this. Um, are you concerned that this might just turn people off? That's just not a welcoming place or it's too much of a hassle? Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, there there is a, you know, prevailing feeling that when you come into the LCBO, you know, it is a very welcoming um, environment. We take pride, obviously, in, in the work that we do, and we make sure that, you know, we provide that environment. Um, it's, it's The LCBO wouldn't discuss um, these type of measures with us uh, in the past, and we've been at, like I said, we've been advocating, but it wasn't a place that they wanted to go. And most recently, you know, um, after COVID, things have gotten a lot worse. Theft has increased. And, and as I said, the associated violence with that comes along with that theft has increased. So I think, you know, it's, it's time that they look at doing more. And I wanted to ask you what you think more beyond this might look like. Uh, Manitoba took other measures to reduce theft as well. They added more security staff members and loss prevention officers who are trained to actually be able to apprehend people yes. who are taking things. So w- would you like to see all of that rolled out in Ontario as well? Of, co- of course, of course. And this is also something through our Provincial Health and Safety Committee that we've been advocating mm-hmm. for is additional security, right? Um, and security with the skills, like you said, as well to, you know, deal with the situation. But we also don't want escalating violence in the store either. We do everything in our control to de-escalate in in our locations. Um, we all want to go home safe. We want our customers to go home safe. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've worked for the organization for 26 years. The people that I serve are my community members. Mm-hmm. So I want everybody to go home safe. So okay. I don't want any escalation of violence in our locations, to be perfectly honest. And if having you know ID checked at the door um, will eliminate some of that violence, I think it's a very, very small price to pay for people's safety. Colleen, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. No, thank you very much. And you have a lovely day. You too. Take care. Thank you.
Colleen McLeod is the chair of the Liquor Board Employees Division of OPSU. We reached her in Toronto. This is a tune called Crooked Stovepipe, performed by legendary Métis fiddler Angus Bolio, who died on the weekend at the age of 89. Mr. Bolio was from Fort Resolution in the Northwest Territories. He first performed at a dance when he was just 14. He said his arms got tired that night, but he stuck with it anyway, and fiddle remained part of his life for more than 70 years. Among those remembering him this week is Linda Duford. She's with the Cole Crook Fiddle Association in Hay River, Northwest Territories. I met him when I was about 18 or 19, living in Fort Simpson. He was um, the first Métis-style fiddler that I really ever heard in person. And um, we've been friends ever since, on and off over the years, always running into each other at concerts and festivals. And yeah, just just an amazing person and um, really cherished the friendship. Can you talk about his love for his craft? We used to call him the walking museum. I mean, <laughs> um, anybody who's ever been to Angus and Dorothy's in Fort Resolution will will know the thrill of walking into their home and the whole place is full of fiddles and and trophies and posters. And it, it's like walking into the past. There's really not a word to put to it. Angus was like the personification of music in the NWT. I mean, he was, he lived it. He he was it, everything he did. Linda, how would you describe his impact on fiddling in the North? Oh my goodness. You could go to any corner of the Northwest Territories or Nunavut or anywhere. And people knew who Angus was. He was, uh, he was just one of a kind. I mean, People respected him. Um, they loved his music. He was a real celebrity in the NWT. And, and everybody loved him because he was such a, a nice person and willing to share share his stories, share his music. Um, you go visit him and he would, he would walk you through anything you wanted to know, tell you the history of things. Um, just one of those people, one of a kind. He had a really storied and interesting life. So, I mean, I visit him. Well, I can't even tell you how many times, but every time I've gone, I've gotten a, another story. And, you know, I some of them I'd heard a couple of times, but it didn't matter because they were such good stories. I mean, my favorite one was, was Angus coming to a dance in Fort Simpson, or not coming to a dance, coming to a dance in Hay River, uh, coming over to Hay River and they their their fiddler that they had for some reason couldn't make it so they heard angus was in town but angus didn't have a fiddle so they they found an old fiddle for him it didn't have any strings he rigged up some strings he didn't have a bow he cut a, a spruce branch off and strung some hair on it he didn't have rosin so he went and got some <laughs> spruce gum so you know this is just fascinating to me and getting over here 
the river was out and they had to portage over the river. Like, it's just amazing. And it, it, the, the, the best part of it is that all his stories were true, unbelievable, but true. Linda Duford is with the Cole Crook Fiddle Association in Hay River, Northwest Territories. She was talking to the CBC's Hilary Bird about her friend, the late fiddler Angus Bolio, who died on the weekend at the age of 89. For many of us, February 13th is traditionally the day we remember that we forgot that the next day is Valentine's Day and then scramble to secure a dinner reservation or a gift that somehow suggests we didn't get it at a pharmacy. Well, for us, as it happens, it is also a day of self-love because it's a World Radio Day, which, according to UNESCO, honors, quote, one of the most dependable and widely utilized forms of media in the world, unquote. Thank you. So we thought we'd mark the day by celebrating someone that Texans have been depending on for more than 70 years. Mary McCoy co-hosts a morning country show on K-Star Radio in Conroe, Texas. From our archives, here is Ms. McCoy speaking to Neil last March about being awarded the Guinness World Record for longest-serving female radio presenter in the world. Well, Mary, congratulations, first of all. Thank you so much. <laughs> this, is, this is one real big honor, let me tell you. <laughs> well, it's quite an honor speaking to you. So what's the secret to staying on the radio so long? Well, because my love for people... <laughs> I I started when I was 12 years old. I knew what I wanted to do. You won't believe this. I knew what I wanted to do even back when I was three years old. I yodeled all the time. (laughs) And I yodeled some on the radio, but but I wanted my show more than that. How, How did you know that's what you wanted to do? Well, because I would listen to the radio on Saturday night out on the porch, front porch of my house. My daddy was working on a farm. And we'd sit there and listen to the Grand Ole Opry. Well, I wanted to sing and make records, but most of all, I wanted my own show on radio. And you got it when you were 12. <laughs> That's remarkable that you, you won a, a contest, right? And then yes, you said, I, I want a, my own show. I was on a talent uh, contest, and, well, the manager of the, uh, the Crichton Theater in Conroe, and he told me that he wanted me to come up and that he heard a lot about me and wanted me to come up and be on the talent show. And after that, he said, uh, do you know enough songs to do 15 minutes? Well, 15 minutes sound like an eternity to me, but I said, I think so. Well, I, he recorded me, told me to catch that big old Greyhound bus and go back home and listen to the radio at 1 o'clock. Well, I got as close as I could get to it, and I was so sorry because I thought that was worst thing I ever heard in my life when I heard myself sing. Of course, my mama, you know, told me right the opposite, and I didn't give up. That next uh, week, well, I had a sponsor for my show. They called me from the radio station, and so I had that sponsor for a while where I sang, but I wanted to play records. I wanted to play the artist that I would hear sing. And I guess, you know, the good Lord has blessed me because... I got to be on the stage with 
almost, uh, not all of them, but most of them, I was there. I did uh, two shows with Elvis. I was at, really at four of them, but two of them where I was on the I was on the stage with him. Yeah, let me ask you about that. So it's it's 1955. Yes, Elvis rolls into town. Right, right as his career is taking off or starting to take off. There's That's this great right. photo of the two of you together. Pretty cozy there, uh, Mary, I got to say. <laughs> Do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah. I used to say, girls, eat your heart out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was, let me say that one thing about Elvis. I'm glad that I got to know him. He was just, you couldn't ask for a better person. We're reaching you at K-Star Studios right now. How did today's show go, Mary? Today, it was, well, it was very exciting because after I found out I was going to get to talk to you, Neil, <laughs> I was more excited because I've always heard so much about Canada, and I, I've always want to, wanted to visit Canada. I may never get to, but my voice will be there. <laughs> oh, it absolutely will be, and it'll be in our archives forever, but you should come down uh, and visit us sometime. If it's all possible, maybe I will get to Neil. Well, maybe we'll get to meet face-to-face. When is it that you feel like, oh, that was a great show? What makes it a great show to you? Well, uh, it makes it a great show when you hear from your folk because I love people. Not only do do I do my shows, but when I get off the air, I still go out and call on my people. I'm in sales, and this is what keeps me going, Neil. uh, And I can truthfully say it's the people. I love where I live. I couldn't ask for a better place. You say you have another job? You're in sales on top of the show you host? I I have clients, and I'll tell you something else that I do for those clients, too. When I'm not too tired, I take them uh, sourdough bread that I make over the weekend. (laughs) You're the kind of person that doesn't like to sit still. Is that right? No. No, I have to be busy. I love what I do, and, of course, I know I probably run... My co-host crazy sometimes when we're off the air, but I'm proud to say that I've I've had a lot of years uh, working with, his name is Larry Gala, and he's been in radio a long time, too. And as a matter of fact, we did a commercial this morning. He said, well done. I said, well, you taught me well. (laughs) (laughs) I have a pretty great co-host, too, Chris Howden, uh, so I know how important that is. What is it like when you walk around? Are you a celebrity in your town? Well, well, I'm, I don't. I, I feel like I love everybody, uh, Neil, and it's always a treat to go out and visit with my my people. I call them my people because I I have uh, I have the largest family that you could ever have. <laughs> because when I call on a person, they become my family. It makes my day. Oh Well, this has made my day, Mary, but before we say goodbye, before we let you go, you mentioned all the requests you get in. You play requests for, for your listeners, but I want to give you uh, a chance to play what you love, Mary. So is there a song we can play for our audience now? Um, maybe one of your all-time favorite country songs? Well, could you play, could you play Elvis for me? We absolutely can play Elvis. Which song? Starting Today. Thank you so much, Mary. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Neil. And don't give up on me. Maybe I'll show up in your studio one day. <laughs> you are the last person I'm ever going to give up on, Mary. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. 
From our archives, that was Mary McCoy, the co-host of The Larry and Mary Show on K-Star Radio in Conroe, Texas, speaking to Neil last March. Starting today I'm teaching my heart Not to ache anymore Just cause we're apart You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.